The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. This is the fourth and final session talking about what it means to be really human, truly human, and it revolves around this concept of being made in the image of God. So, and we're taking just the light topic of gender and sexuality tonight, but I think this is a key topic with all that we're facing, all that we're seeing in the world today. So there's a scene in the classic movie Toy Story where Andy has his birthday party and the final present comes out, and of course the present is Buzz Lightyear. And this is Woody's greatest fear that a toy is going to replace him. And so there on Andy's bed is the sort of Buzz Lightyear action figure, and it's in, its car- it's in his cardboard um, sort of spaceship and he, the spaceship, it's open, he comes out, and he does not realize he's in a child's bedroom, right? He, he thinks he's on some planet, and he's fighting, I think, is it Zorg? And, like, this is what he's sure of. And so when Woody and the other toys pop up, he tries to sh- shoot them with his laser beam, which is just a blinking light. And then at some point, Woody pushes the button on Buzz's chest, and his shield opens up, and he thinks he's dying oxygen. And, and really, in one sense... For all of the different ways to describe Toy Story, if you look at it from Buzz's perspective, it's, it's Buzz realizing that he has been living in the wrong story, and over the course of the movie, he starts to live in the right story. And the right story is actually far bigger and better than the story he thought he was living. Right, so he thinks he's living in the story of him, the superhero space cowboy fighting Zorg. And so that's why he acts the way he does, which really doesn't make a lot of sense, and it seems to fail. But by the end, he realizes that he's in a much bigger story, which is that he belongs to this child, and he's able to bring this child delight and happiness. And then everything starts to make sense to Buzz, right? This is sort of what we've been talking about for four weeks, is that there is a much larger, bigger, better story that our lives fit within. And when we start to see them that way, everything makes much more sense. And it's far bigger and better than we realize. But many of us, and certainly much of the world around us, is sort of like Buzz Lightyear. We, we think this alternate reality is actually true. And because of that, it's frustrating and it's inconvenient and it doesn't make any sense. And it's filled with disappointment and despair. And it isn't until we move from this false story or this false narrative and start to find ourselves in the true bigger story that we start to find purpose and meaning and things start to make sense. And so that's why when we've gone through this each, each time, have you noticed that each of the outlines is the same? For all four of these sessions, four different topics, each outline is the same. What we're saying is for us to understand ourselves we actually have to find ourselves in this bigger story, this better story that begins with creation and ends with consummation. When we start to locate ourselves within this story and understand our lives within this larger story, then we start to say, oh, this is bigger and better and much, makes much more sense than the way I've been trying to live where everything doesn't seem to work. Like Buzz Lightyear, I'm, I, I'm, I'm confused and I'm frustrated. I don't know how I'm supposed to accomplish this thing that I really was never intended to do. So the story about 
gender and sexuality our society is telling us is something I would call ignorant certainty. Ignorant certainty. Here's what we're told. We cannot objectively understand what is true, so we're ignorant. But we're certain that the traditional understanding of gender and sexuality is harmful and hateful. So we're ignorant of what is true, but we know that that is harmful and hurtful. Maybe you'd say this way, we're certain you're wrong even though we don't know what's right. So we saw this play out on a national scale not long ago when a new Supreme Court justice was asked the question, can you provide a definition for the word woman? And she answered, no, I can't. And then she explained why I'm not a biologist. Right? So ignorant certainty. So here's what I want to do tonight is I want to look at these, these topics of gender and sexuality within this larger story because that's where they start to make sense. They start to make sense if we go, okay, within the story of the world, the bigger, better story, this is where I find understanding and meaning and purpose, not within sort of the alternate narrative that we're hearing. So let's start with creation. So gender and sexuality, the first chapter is creation, and here it is, God created man and woman in his image, and marriage is a way for humanity to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, so in creation, God created one race. Let's stop there, one race. This actually goes back to what Tyler taught a couple weeks ago about there being one race, the human race. There are a number of ethnicities defined by language and culture and geography and background, but one race. And so even when we're talking about gender, we understand that men and women, there's far more similarity than there is difference, right? So often we define man and woman simply in contrast with each other, which we understand, right? We're trying to say what's the difference, but we should start by saying most of it is the same. Man and woman, for the most part, most of what makes us up is the same. Like we are far more unified than we are distinct. Okay, so one race, but composed of two distinct but complementary genders. Okay, let's, let's see it. Genesis 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, Adam, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh of that, of that place. So coming from him. So we see the one race. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. And so we see, do you see there like all of those things, one race, she comes from me, she's like me, she's, we're, we're, we're unified, bone by bone, flesh by flesh, but there's a distinction. She'll be called woman because she came out of man. So there we see distinction. Jesus quoted these same verses in Matthew 19. So if anyone says, sometimes we hear this say, well, Jesus never said that. Well, Jesus did say this. Now, that's a false, we understand that's a false dichotomy, right? The words of Jesus versus the words of Scripture. Because the, the words of God and Jesus, the Word of God, these are not in, these are never said in opposition to each other. In fact, what does Jesus do constantly? Well, doesn't, don't the Scriptures say? Like, as it's written, I did this to fulfill the Scriptures. I didn't come to abolish it. Like, Jesus, more than anyone, affirms the Scriptures. But Jesus repeats the same thing. Now, these are complementary genders as well, right? They're not in opposition to each other. There's a completion that comes from this. So, in one sense, Adam's incomplete alone, and now he's complete with the introduction of woman. So, they complement each other. 
Now, often we hear people refer to the gender, right? And this is the phrase we hear a lot, that someone was assigned at birth. Interesting, right? What we know is meant by that is that, like, and this is that false story, doesn't make a lot of sense, but at birth, the doctor said, well, I'm assigning you to be a man or woman, male or female. Now, right, even the phrasing of that's ridiculous. But we know because of this story that God assigns our gender much earlier because we're told in Psalm 139 that in the womb, God knits us together. And so it's interesting to me, the phrase assigned at birth is actually meant to be a shot at the traditional and correct understanding of men and women. And yet there's something correct about it. We are assigned it. It's given to us. Gender is not something we choose. It's something we receive. God made us man. God made us woman. God knit us each together. He gives us our gender. We receive it. We don't decide or choose for ourselves. In fact, in spite of all of the scientific evidence, and we're going to talk maybe just slightly, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a biologist, though I can help you understand man and woman from the Bible, right? There are X, X chromosomes and XY chromosomes. And so even when you read, and we'll, or we talk a little bit about what about sort of the strange cases, there are still X and X, and either there's a presence of a Y chromosome or there's not. And so even biology backs up what God does. He assigns at birth, or he assigns in the womb, male and female. Now notice here, genders, male and female, are part of God's good creation. So if you're ever asking, why is this a debate? Well, that's the answer. This is part of God's good creation. God makes man and woman, and he says, this is good. And so why is there an attack on this? Because God made it, and it is good. And so we should never think like this is somehow something that has developed, or it's inferior, or it's, it's somehow less, or no, this is God's good plan. In fact, even the way he has Adam notice it, right? Ah, there's two different giraffes. There's two different turtles. There's two different lions. There's two different this. There's only one of me. It's not not good for man to be alone, God says. So he does this and he says, oh, it's very good. So gender is part of God's good plan, which is why gender is under attack. Next thing we see is both genders are necessary to reflect God's image. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image So he created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. Even right there, both genders are necessary for the image of God to be displayed. I was thinking about this, and I was was trying to think about exactly why this is, and I don't know why. God doesn't actually, that I can find, say, this is why both genders are necessary to display my image. But he says, this is. When he makes his image, he says, he makes him his image, and then he specifically says, male and female. So for us to image God, for, for humanity to reflect and demonstrate God as we are intended to do, there needs to be both men and women. Not only that, you need both genders to fulfill God's command to fill the earth. Verse 28, Genesis 1, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Okay. Be fruitful and multiply. No one who, anyone who disagrees with what we're going to talk about tonight, no one can get around this. To be fruitful and multiply requires what? A male and a female. Like, so in, 
Again, why is this under attack? Because God's command to us as his creatures is to display his image, fulfill, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Both of these things require male and female. And so the more it can be obscured or twisted, the, the more it can be attacked. You must have male and female in order to multiply and fill the earth. I think one thing we can see is that differences in genders. Now, that's, that's an important word, differences. Someone said, notice it's differences, not deficits in genders. Like somehow that's how we do, but that's part of our own pride, right? We, we, we sometimes look down upon people that are different than us. So, you know, like it's easy for men to make jokes about women or women about men. And, and sometimes those can be done in good fun, but yet these are not deficits. These are differences. But they demonstrate the creative wisdom of God. For all of human history, people have noticed basic human differences between men and women. Right? And what's, what's the basic difference between men and women? In the most basic sense, it's this. Women can give birth, men cannot, and men can father children, and women cannot. And, and so maybe we can just, just think about that for a moment. Not going too far, but just think about that fundamental distinction. I know the language we hear right now is insane. You know, birthing people, well, that's women because only women can give birth. Men cannot give birth. If someone gives birth, they're not a man. They're a woman. Just, right? But only women can give birth. Only men can father children. These are distinctive but complementary roles. One person said, and I think it's helpful, they said, manhood in general is directed outward, while womanhood in general is directed inward. Men are typically, though not always, initiators, builders, and protectors of communities, while women are formers, nurturers, and sustainers of community. Now, again, that's making a, a broad statement. It's not saying like everyone fits neatly into some sort of like traditional stereotypical role. That's not what it's saying, but it's saying we, we have noticed this throughout human history that there is a sense. Because here's one thing, um, no father has ever carried a child in his womb for nine months, right? That's unique to a mother. And so therefore, Right? There, there's something that happens in those nine months between a mother and her child that does not happen in the same way between a father and his child. Fair? But I think any, like, yeah, I mean, there's a difference there. And so does that difference often come out in a nurturing, in a, like, while carrying this child, there are certain things that cannot be done or should not be done for the safety of the child. Therefore, there are certain traditional things that men have often done and women have often done because women can mother and carry a child and a, a man cannot. Well, yes, let's just learn from the fact that this is how God made us. Now, now let's just say that in those definitions, we're not saying in order to be a, a woman, you must carry a child in your womb. Of course not. Or to be a man, you must father a child. Of course not. What we're saying is that the trajectory of women has generally been towards motherhood, towards nurturing, towards caring, towards… And, and this is why, apart from the rare couple, I mean, who, who's almost always more aware and sensitive emotionally? There's the rare couple, but most of… I know a lot of you. Most of you, the answer is not the guy, right? No? Because, okay, maybe you're all unique. Maybe you're all hiding it from me, but generally it's not. Like, again, this is how… This is sort of the, the way God made us to complement each other. Here's the next thing. Gender is not a cultural construct. 
but it's recognizable in nature. Okay? Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, brought each to the man to see who he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the living livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal, but for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So in other words, Adam's sitting there and he recognizes, wait, there's a male and female of all of the animals. Right? He didn't take a class on this. There wasn't societal pressure on Adam to recognize certain roles, right? He just looked at nature. It's still the case. There are no transgender pigs, right? There are no half-hen, half-roosters. Like, this is, it's simply not how our world is. The puzzle pieces fit only one way. Now, have you noticed that the common sense just approach, it affects other language, like electrical and plumbing? There are male parts and female parts. Why is it? Because it's obvious there's a difference. God has made us different. And, it's, and that's, what, that's what some of Genesis 2 is showing us. Like, when we're, when we're denying this, what we're denying is what's actually obvious in nature. Now, as we look at this sort of first part of the chapter of creation, let's, let's move a little bit from gender to, it says gender and sexuality, but really we're going to talk about gender and marriage because issues of sexuality are issues of marriage, right? Because within God's story, that's the place where sexuality is meant to be expressed. So here we see marriage is a lifelong covenant relationship of intimacy and unity between one man and one woman. Genesis 2 verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now, this is put in a part, portion of Scripture where Adam and Eve don't have parents. So why is it here described this way? It's saying this is the pattern for for marriage going forward. This is what Jesus draws on in all the Gospels where he talks about marriage, this lifelong covenant relationship of intimacy, verse 25. They're open, exposed completely for each other, and unity. They come together and become one, one man, one woman. Proverbs 2, it talks about the temptress being the one who forgets the covenant she made in her youth, right? It's supposed to be this lifelong covenant relationship. And Jesus echoes these words in Matthew 19 when talking about divorce. Listen, words matter. The word marriage means something. Now, this is hard because sometimes, like over the years, even Christians, we start to say things like gay marriage, which we need to guard that language because that's not actually a thing. It can be ruled a thing by a court or by lawmakers. It doesn't make it a thing. The marriage is objectively and fundamentally something. By, by adding a descriptor which changes that, it doesn't actually change it. Right? It waters it down, it weakens it, or it contradicts it. But marriage means something, which means a lifelong covenant union between one man and one woman. So the sense of gay marriage, it's like bright darkness. Right? It, it, you must change what the word darkness means in order to make it bright. Right? You must change what the word marriage means in order to add a descriptor like that. Right? And this is, this is words are tools. They're like a chisel and a hammer. They shape and they mold and they form an object until 
it often changes into something else entirely. And then here we go. Marriage is necessary for humanity to obey God's command, but it is not necessary for every individual human. So again, multiplying and filling the earth requires marriage. And so it's a vital part of God's command to humanity. Marry, and then out of your marriages, fill the earth. Reflect my glory in that way. Now, it's not necessary for individual human. So 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about singleness, and he says it's a unique gift from God. It should be treasured. It gives, it provides opportunities to, for a type of wholehearted devotion to God that is unique, that someone who's married cannot do in the same way. And so it is not required or necessary for every human. It is not required for being fulfilled or being faithful, but yet as a human race, it is necessary. So there's creation, the first chapter in the story. Here's the fall. The fall, chapter number two, the heart of rebellion is a desire for self-rule and the ability to determine for oneself what is good and evil. Okay, go to chapter three, verse five. The first man and woman did not want God to determine for them what was right and wrong. This is key. I think this actually unlocks under, sort of the understanding of what's going on. Why are people doing this? What's behind this? Well, this is here what it is. Genesis 3, verse 5. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is a half-truth, right? Their eyes will be opened to good and evil, but not in the way at all like God. The woman saw the tree was good for food. It was delightful to look at, and it was desirable for, for attaining wisdom. So she took it, ate it, gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Right? So what are, what are, what's their motive here? It's saying, I don't want God to determine for me what is good and evil. I want to determine for myself. I want this godlike ability to determine for myself what I think is right and what I think is wrong. In other words, I don't want God standing above me saying, this is right, this is wrong. You must obey what I say. I want to stand out from underneath him and say, I decide what's right. I decide what's wrong. Their rebellious choice next immediately impacted how they viewed themselves and each other. Verse 7, and the eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So this desire to determine for themselves what is right and wrong apart from God, it changes everything and it changes how they view themselves. So this is where an identity crisis begins. So when we're talking about things like gender identity, this, we, we can trace it back. I'm not saying Adam and Eve had gender identity, but they had identity issues immediately, right? All of a sudden it's like, whoa, who are we? Who are you? I, I don't like what you see. I need to hide myself. I don't know really who I am, but I'm ashamed of who I am. And so I must hide myself. I must cover myself. And so this, this is where this all starts. We view ourselves and each other differently because of sin, because of this desire to determine for ourselves what's right and wrong. And notice when God punishes them in chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, he does so in gender distinctive areas. So though the curse is felt holistically, that even within the punishments, we see that God recognizes some measure of distinction between man and woman. For instance, he one of the curses on the woman is what? Pain in childbirth. That, that doesn't really affect us, guys, does it? I mean, we feel bad. My, my fingers hurt because my wife was squeezing my hand so hard. I don't think it compared to what she was going through. She's not here. That's why I say that. Don't tell her. 
right? About, I mean, so it didn't really affect me. Now we can say the thorns and the thistles and the difficulty in working the land affects both man and woman, certainly, but he directs it towards man knowing that men will primarily be the ones who are out there laboring because while a woman is pregnant and she's, she is nurturing and feeding and caring for children, she's not going to be out there off regularly. It's going to be her husband that's doing this. And so even within this, God is recognizing there are distinctions. Here's what we see next. Humanity discovers new ways to ignore God and reject His commands. Psalm 36, we looked at this just a couple weeks ago, but it talks about there being no fear of God, no dread of God in the eyes of humanity. And it goes on and says humanity basically lies upon his bed and plots evil, right? We're, we, God gives us this creative impulse, and this creative impulse, I think, is part of the image of God in us. Tyler talked about this a little bit in week one. Adam did last week about how work flows out of this creative impulse God gives us. We reflect his creativity and his creation as we develop things. But it can be now turned towards good and evil, or because I have determined for myself what's good and evil, I turn it towards what I determine is good, which is often evil. And then you just think about different things. A gun can be used for good or evil, right? If, you're, if you need to live off the land and someone said, hey, put the bow and arrow away and here's a gun for the first time, you're like, thank you, right? This just made my life easier. But a gun can also be turned in on someone else to murder them. A phone, I mean, our phones, we know they can be used for evil. We hope they can be used for good, right? It's a tool that we've created but we turn these tools often away from what God says is good into evil. And this is even as we think about things like gender reassignment. A lot of the treatment, I use that in quotes, is to suppress nature, right? Things like puberty blockers, organ removal. I mean, these are, these are humanity grasping at ways to be God. I don't I don't want God to tell me who I am. So I came out of the womb one way, but I'm going to suppress it, and I'm going to remove things so that I can, for myself, determine what is good. And there are people who God has given intelligence and education who have discovered ways to use those gifts to do evil, to harm and hurt others. Now turn to Romans 1. This is a key passage. The desire for self-rule ultimately finds its end in two things, okay? And we see these clearly in Romans 1. So the Apostle Paul here is he's making the argument that all people stand guilty before God. Chapter 1 focuses primarily on those who are not Jewish or at least religious by nature. And chapter 2 goes on to those who are Jewish. And he's making the case, it's chapter 3, right? It's everyone. But in chapter 1, he's talking about how sin just continues to to degrade. And let's start in verse 26. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their woman, women exchanged natural sexual relationships for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed of their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so they, 
so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, wickedness, envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Although they knew God's just sentence, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Right, so what is this desire for self-rule? That's what it's saying here. In fact, this is, the, the language here is worship language. Earlier it talks about exchanging the glory of the immortal God for created images. Like, so here, here is what it's saying. Be, the fall was a desire to live for ourselves, to live for our own perceived ends instead of the ends for which God created us. And so what we do is we exalt created things by deciding we know better than the creator how his creation should function. And the result of that is that we reject God's creative design. So think about in the beginning, God makes man and woman. He says, this is very good. They fit together. They'll complement each other. From them will come the population of the earth. Then they say, oh, no, 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 no. We want to decide for ourselves what is good and evil. And he says, here's the inevitable result. It's now humanity stands back and says, I don't, I'm not being told by God what you do. I'm God. And so I'm exchanging the glory of the immortal God for the glory, if you will, of created things. And so I'll decide, like, I want to redesign myself and my relationships in the way I think is good, and no one should tell me otherwise. And so the, the inevitable desire for self-rule is a destruction of God's creative design. The good way in which God created the earth is cast aside. And it's, you notice it's also rejection of his initial commands. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Can a homosexual relationship be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth? No, it, it simply cannot, right? It's, in fact, I was listening to one Christian commentator talk about within a homosexual relationship, you can't even talk about fertility. Like, what does it even mean to be infertile? Because it's simply, like, it's not possible. Like, there's no fertilization going on. Like, in other words, it, it, there's language which doesn't even fit. So you cannot be fruitful and multiply within that. And so that, this is why this is so prevalent. We've got to see this story that's taking place. And if so if we, if we redefine the story only to what we feel like or what we think, right, it just breeds confusion and uncertainty and frustration, despair. But when we step back, we say like, oh, okay, this is what's happening. God made it like this. In our rejection of God, we're trying to be God ourselves, and we're trying to recreate ourselves and our relationships in our own design, and this is tragically failing. Okay, let's look at redemption. I know I'm going fast. I've got a lot of points. All the other notes were half sheets, and I said, yeah, sorry. But I wanted you to have them so that as you thought and about things, you'd have a lot of these verses to look at. The redemption, the gospel brings equality and dignity to men and women without erasing distinctions. And it celebrates marriage as a picture of God's, of Christ's love for the church. So men and women are both redeemed by Jesus Christ and share equally in his inheritance. So Galatians 3, we looked at this, well, when did we study Galatians? It wasn't that long ago. A couple years, I'm not sure. Not that long ago. But in Galatians 3, there's this profound passage and I think it's something we could, easily, we could easily look over and not understand the great significance of it. So Galatians 3 verse 28 says, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you're all one in Christ Jesus. 
Okay, is he saying that genders have been erased? And ethnicities have been erased? And that instantly every slave was just free? Or is he saying like this, your, your status, your earthly status, and all those are status words. Jew and Greek are status words. Slave and free, male and female in that culture, these are status words. He's like, those don't matter because you're one. You're all level. You're all un- unified in Christ. Because then he goes on, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. This is, this is why this is so profound. In this time, women were not heirs. Women were not heirs. In fact, you hear things like bride price, dowries. These come from where often daughters were closer to property than to certainly to heirs. And this is what it says in the gospel, all are heirs all our sons. Not erasing, it's not erasing, we're going to look at the second, this next point. It's not erasing gender and the differences. We'll see that in a moment. What it's saying is that all are given this exalted status. And it's the same, even if you're in a society where women are thought of as property and men are thought of as like you matter, in Christ, in the gospel, you're all sons, you're all heirs. See, sonship for women is a radical statement that was at odds with society. And this is what we need. This is one of those lies we're hearing. We need to understand Christianity has led the way in affirming the inherent dignity of women. So don't, we're told the opposite, and we need to reject that. That is not true. It is not true historically, and it is not true across the board now. now of course, we can all find an example or two, or 10 or 20, of where it's not. But that's not been the case, even in the New Testament. Who are the first witnesses to the resurrection? Women. Why? Why? I mean, logic would tell us it should be the disciples, but it wasn't. I can't help but think that God was making a point there. All our sons, all have dignity. We're told that the people who supported Jesus were whom? Financially. Primarily women. The early church Often women, they're, they're spelled out intentionally. They're included by name and letters. That would have been strange, right? Christianity said, like, through redemption, God has exalted both men and women alike. He has made them, he has made them equal in dignity and honor. Okay, here's the next thing. Though co-heirs in Jesus Christ, men and women retain gender distinctions. We don't have to turn there, but Titus 2 gives specific commands to older men, to older women, to younger women, and to younger men. The commands overlap because most of the Christian life is the same whether you're a man or woman. And so be sensible is repeated to all the groups. In other words, live live with the type of of self-control in how you act. Older man, older woman, younger. But then there are things that are unique. So older women, there's some unique things you should be saying to younger women. Right? Because we, we gender, male and female, we're not erased at the cross. That's part of God's good creation. 1 Corinthians 11, which is a long passage. I only want to throw it out here and say, like, again, there, there's a recognizable distinction in the genders. One of the lies of our society is that if you erase gender distinctions, it means you're giving women more honor. 
that if there's any distinction between the gender, that means women are less honored. But how are, think about this, primarily how are gender distinctions erased? It's by women becoming more like men. You can do everything a man can do. You don't have to stay home with kids. You don't have to do this. You don't, in other words, what all of those markers of motherhood, of nurturing, all of them say, like, the, the more we get rid of those, the, the, that's how you gain honor. So one Christian writer who has written helpfully on this topic, Rebecca Merkel, wrote that feminism has not liberated women but created a boring monochrome world where woman is reduced to a blurry something that can be anything, paving the way for even biological males to claim the word as their own. Feminism is, likely fo- is like folly who with her own hands tears her house down, deconstructing the notion of womanhood to the point of utter incoherence. And so what we say as Christians is we say men and women have equal dignity, have equal standing before the Lord, but what makes women glorious is that they're women, and what makes men glorious is they're men. And they don't, one does not become more valuable by becoming like the other. Next, marriage is intended to serve as a beautiful picture of the love of Jesus for his people. Ephesians 5, through 33, I'm not going to read it, but it's exactly saying, wives, submit yourselves to your husband as the church does to Christ, and Christ, love your husband, or love your Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Right, and so marriage as God designed is this beautiful picture. You just realize the biblical view of marriage offers hope. Right, so marriage at its best does what? It's a picture of sacrificial love, of two people laying down their lives for each other, of willingly giving of themselves for the other's good. It's a picture of redemption. How Christ offers his life in order to purchase his bride out of slavery. It's a picture of transformation. But what does society's story offer? Well, I think it's a story about consumerism. Hey, take what you want. Take what feels good. Define for yourself what makes it happy. And if someone agrees with you and you can use them for your purpose of self-fulfillment, then use them. And if not, find someone else. It offers self-definition. Hey, you determine what's best for you. Do you actually think about that's a really, really heavy burden to bear? Do you know best what will make you happy? I challenge you if you say yes, that you don't actually. I mean, that's a heavy burden to bear. Hey, in this world where you're in control, frankly, of so few things, you determine for yourself what makes you happy. I don't want that burden. I can't bear that. But this is the story, this is the hope, quote-unquote, that the society story offers you. But it's the hope of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Be like God. Determine for yourself what is good and evil. That doesn't turn out real well, does it? Redemption. Chapter 4, Restoration. The story of humanity culminates in a great wedding celebration between Jesus and his church. So the earthly picture of marriage will be replaced with the greater picture of the church's permanent union with Jesus. Mark 12 says, right, there'll be no marriage in heaven. Revelation, let's turn to Revelation. I wanna, we're going to look at a few here as we, I'd say as we close, but we're not quite there. I'm trying. I'm going fast. Revelation 19, 
6 through 9 here. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of a loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared him herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Right, and so it's saying this is what marriage is intended to picture, the day when Jesus Christ comes and takes his people for himself. Right. And so marriage is no longer necessary in heaven because the, it's, it was a sign of this greater and more wonderful reality. If you've ever, like if you had a neighbor, your house, neighbor's house went up for sale and then someone bought it, they moved in, and three months later, that realtor sign was still in the front yard. All the neighbors would be talking about him, right? When are they going to move that stupid sign? Like, they've lived there for three months, right? You, you move the sign after you move into the house. Why? Because the sign served its purpose. It doesn't need to be. It's not for sale anymore. And, and that's sort of what Jesus was saying. He's like, there doesn't need to be marriage in heaven because, because what it's intended to demonstrate will be experienced. It'll be fully there. Because of our union with Christ next, we will no longer struggle with questions of identity and we'll enjoy eternal intimacy with God and each other. Marriage at its core, right, identity and intimacy. Identity and intimacy. When it's saying, well, these are no longer questions. When, when Jesus returns and he marries his bride, the church, we no longer struggle with questions of identity. For the first time, we'll really know who we are. And we'll enjoy a type of intimacy that we were, marriage was only uh, the, the slightest appetizer of. You look at Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them, right? As a husband lives with his wife. They will be his people identity. God himself will be with them, intimacy. He'll be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more grief. Crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Right? It's saying this is, this is the, what marriage was to picture we will experience in a, in a way that's, that's so far beyond what we can even imagine. Our identity as humans has always flowed from our relationship with God. Look at 22 verse, chapter 22 verse 3. It says, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. What's that mean? It's, you belong to me. You belong to me. You're mine. This is a picture of identity. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light. They will reign forever and ever. Saying this is what marriage is intended to prepare us for. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, when Jesus returns, we will be known then, we'll know even as we are known. In other words, there's a type of intimacy we cannot even now fathom. Finally, all of us, body and soul, will be redeemed from the curse, and for the first time, we'll be fully human. 1 Corinthians 15, we don't have time, we go there and read those verses. It's saying, like, what we live in now, these bodies, they're like the seed, and they're, when we die, they're sown into the ground. Then they come out and, you know, when, when the, what comes out of the ground? It's not the little seed. It's the plant. It's the flower. It's, in fact, would you say like that flower, 
I planted that seed. That seed looks nothing like that flower. Yet it came from it. And that's what it's saying. This is the, the type of broken humanity that we feel right now. It's, it's just the seed. And we'll one day we'll, we'll understand and we'll sort of come out of the ground and we'll start to blossom in a way that God intended. We'll be fully human in a way that's hard for us right now to completely comprehend. Okay, some implications. First, understand both the common and unique nature of temptation. Here's the common nature of temptation, 1 Corinthians 10. There's no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. So what's the common nature of all temptation? It's Genesis 3. I, I, want, I don't want someone to tell me what's right and wrong. I want to decide for myself what's good and evil. That's the common nature of temptation. Here's what I mean. So you see that person, that man dressed as a woman, and you want to be disgusted. That's your first thought. You want to be revolted. You need to understand the common nature of temptation. They're after what you're after when you sin. Yours, just, yours looks different. Also understand the unique nature of temptation. James 1 says, each man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. In other words, that common temptation comes out in different ways. And so we just need to recognize that. All temptation shares a common root, desire for to be God, but it sort of blossoms with different fruit. And here's why I tell you this. This should provoke compassion instead of condemnation. Now, here's what, I, what I'm saying. We can look at sin and say, like, that's wrong. We can look at a drag time story hour and say, like, that's wrong. That's unhealthy. That shouldn't happen. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but what we also do is we look at people and we say, I understand. I don't understand why the temptation manifests itself like that. That doesn't appeal to me. That doesn't, that's not my lust. But I understand what it means, what it's like to be tempted and to want my own way and want to define myself how I want to define myself. And I know that's at the root of that. Humility instead of haughtiness. Now we know this. Those struggling with questions of gender identity and same-sex attraction have higher suicide rates. That's, that's true. Now, the next sentence is where we need to be careful. So we're told this, therefore, affirm them. Right? That's what we're told. No, that's not true. That's not helpful. We're not saying don't affirm what's harmful to them, but do this. Recognize that if someone is dealing with those things, there's a level of suffering that they need you to enter with them. So the observation that they're more prone to self-harm is correct. The solution, therefore, affirm them, does not help them. But since that's true, our hearts should be drawn even more into compassion for them, right? Like they're, we know how, how their life is, it's, maybe it's barely holding on. Let's be moved with compassion towards them. Like we love our neighbors. And this is a question each Christian needs to think about, right? Who, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And what's his answer? It's a story of the Good Samaritan, Right? The, least, the person you'd least expect. Who's our neighbor? Well, the guy in drag is my neighbor. How do I love him? How do I love him in a way that actually helps him and pulls him away from destruction? Second, remember that sin has affected us physically and spiritually. So we see the physical effects. Genesis 3, right? It's childbirth. It's going to be painful. Death comes on. 1 Corinthians 11 
Some of you are dying because of your sin, Jesus says, or Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 11. And so here, here's what we got to understand. The effects are seen, of sin are also seen in things like birth defects. I'm not saying that someone, a, a man and woman sin, therefore their child had birth defect. What I'm saying is sin has corrupted everything. And so there are birth defects. Matthew 19, verse 12, we're told that there are eunuchs by birth. Sort of a strange phrase, but basically it's saying there are some who are born and they're not, they have a defect, so they're, no, they're not able to have children. They're, they're not able to operate as a male was intended to operate. There are other birth defects. There's Kleinfelter syndrome. It's when a man has an extra X chromosome. He's still a man, but because of that, like, it has affected him. This is a real thing. Are these common? They're not very common, but they happen. Turner syndrome, a female born with only an X chromosome. Now, some of these things are not only overblown, but they're also used in misguided and misinformed ways. We recognize that, but let's understand that there's this physical aspect to living under the curse that affects some people in really difficult ways. Sin has also shattered our body-soul connection so that we don't feel whole. Let's just be honest about that. Again, you don't, apart from Christ, you don't feel whole. And even after Christ, we struggle with that, don't we? So when we see a neighbor struggling to feel whole, we should, we should sympathize with them. We should love them, yet we understand that. They're not just, like we can't say like they're just making it up. No, they don't feel whole and they're trying to find a solution. And so let's, let's not belittle them, let's actually love them to the only solution that there is. Third, talk honestly and humbly about God's design for human flourishing and the inevitable end of humanity's rebellion. Honestly and humbly. Psalm 19 talks about the power of the Word of God. It brings joy, it transforms, it liberates. Like, this is true. Let's believe this. We're going to be tempted, as especially if, if, as, if cult, as culture likely keeps running further away from what God said in His Word and His good design, that could be more pressure on us. And so we're going to be tempted to start to think like, oh, man, like we're going to be apologetic about the Bible or maybe this part's, I don't know, you know, all this stuff. Psalm 19 says, no, the Word of God is perfect. It converts the soul. It's good. It's, it's like honey to be desired. Like we need to believe that. So we talk honestly and humbly. We've got to understand that false narratives are extremely powerful and can take people captive. False narratives are extremely powerful, take people captive. 2 Timothy 3 talks about how there are false teachers who would sneak, sneak into houses and take captive silly women. What's the point? They took them captive with false narratives. Not talking about kidnapping. Saying they spun these narratives and those narratives had the power to ensnare a person. How about this? The crowd that chanted, that chanted Hosanna a week later says, crucify him. How did they get there? A false narrative, right? They have power. And so when we see pride displays everywhere, right? Disney Plus, Amazon, Prime, Target, Walmart, everywhere you enter, Starbucks, all of these places, on and on and on. Understand that's a false narrative and his power. One in five Gen Z, which is the late 90s through the early 2000s, identify as LGBT+. One in five, which is four times more than Generation X, which was 20 years earlier. Why is that? 
because false narratives have power. You, there's sociologists talk about this thing called rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is less a physical or mental condition than a social pandemic. In other words, things are rough at home. You know who will accept you? If you come out, people will accept you. They'll talk about how brave you are. Right? This is a false narrative that has power. One fifth grade teacher talked about the Gay-Straight Alliance Club in his school that is a safe environment that fosters bravery to explore sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression. Okay? We could talk about all the ways that's wrong, but understand that's powerful. It's powerful. Okay, but here's the thing. We have the truth. We have the truth. But let's not pretend that false narratives aren't powerful. They're very powerful. So we need to refuse to compromise truthful speech and always temper the truth with love. Ephesians 4.15, right? We speak the truth in a loving way. So one way we might refuse to compromise spirit, truthful speech is we refuse lovingly to refer to a man or woman with female pronouns because that's not true. I'm not going to lie to you. Now, I, I'm not going to be abrasive, but I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I have the truth, and the truth is more powerful than lies, but I need to do it in love. So I'm going to do that wisely. Maybe I simply refer to them by their name and try to avoid using that. But there are places we go like, I'm not going to lie. That harms you. And so out of love, I'm going to speak the truth and trust that the truth is more powerful ultimately than the lie. But let's do this. Let's be honest about our own sinfulness and struggle to obey. First Timothy 1, Paul talks about himself as the chief of sinners. Okay? So he didn't stand above him and say, like, what a loser. Why don't you have it together? He's like, I get it. I'm the worst sinner I know. If you're the worst sinner you know, which you are, because you're far more familiar, you should be, with the sinful desires in your heart than you are the outward sin of anyone else, then it allows you to humbly speak the truth. Finally, share the gospel which is powerful enough to free sinners and change identity. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 talks about how we're no longer defined by our past sins. He says this, he describes a number of sins, including homosexuality, and he says, and such were some of you, but you have been washed, you have been cleansed, you have been sanctified by Jesus. The gospel has the power. So this is the truth we share to combat the false narratives, which has the power to rescue people from them. The gospel can bring light to those who are blinded by the false teaching of this age. That's our hope. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers lest they believe, but God speaks, let there be light, and the eyes are opened, and they see the glorious light of Jesus. Like this is the hope. Let me wrap it up with one thing to think about as a church, and then I've gone over time. Certain churches now define themselves as welcoming churches. Have you seen this? Signs? websites, videos, and what they say is all are welcome here. And what they imply then is that not all are welcome at other churches, churches like ours, right? So that's, that's, what, that's the narrative. We welcome everyone, that church down the road, them, that Redeemer church, churches like that, they don't welcome everyone. Is that true? No. Not if we understand and practice the gospel, Right? All are welcome here. But, but let's think about what's behind that language. All are welcome means you can come in your sin and we will never help you escape it. But that, that's all are welcome. 
Come in your sin, we have no solution. Come in your brokenness, we can't help you heal. See, all are welcome at Redeemer, but we boldly and humbly offer something far more. We offer freedom and hope and a future in Jesus. So I can think of two places where all are welcome, and I prefer one of them over the other. All are welcome at a morgue, and all are welcome at a hospital. One wraps a pretty box around a dead body, and the other cuts the body open to keep it from dying. Right? And so churches need to be places that are hospitals, not morgues, where we say the truth, we say it in a loving way, we say it in a way that may sting, but brings life and healing. Let me pray. Father, help us to be a church that welcomes all sinners with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with hope. Help us to invite all people into this bigger and better story that started with you making all things good, men and women, marriage. You've given us a purpose and a mission to reflect your image and multiply and fill this earth and exercise your lordship over it. Lord, help us to share the truth about the fall and the common temptation we have to replace you with ourselves. Help us to share about Jesus, who became one of us, who took on humanity, who pursued his bride to rescue her and redeem her. Help us to think about the future restoration where we will live with you and be your people and our name, your name will be on our foreheads. We will belong to you in a way that we can barely even hint at now. So Lord, give us opportunities to proclaim your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.